Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. Between around 1750 and 1830, life in Britain changed, and it changed fast. New technologies held an era of mass production and consumerism, now known as the Industrial Revolution. The British Empire, which at its height covered 25% of the world, was a ready-made market for the goods being churned out of the new factories and mills across Britain. No country launched itself with more enthusiasm into this new era, and for a while there, it really did feel like Britannia ruled the world. Some claimed, however, that the changes happened faster than people could cope with. As the old cottage industries collapsed, people fled to the cities in their thousands, seeking work and escaping starvation. By 1820, only 30% of British labour remained in agriculture. Meanwhile, in towns and cities, men shoveled coal into burning furnaces as smoke billowed from tall chimneys, making the air thick and hard to breathe. Row upon row of newly built workers' cottages surrounded the mills and factories. Weary feet trudged back and forth to complete their 12 to 14 hour days. This age of mass production would create fortunes of men who had the capital to invest. It brought social and sometimes political capital to these individuals. But it brought hardships for others, social unease and tensions. The use of child labour caused particular concern and during the 1830s and 40s, a series of laws were introduced to limit the working hours and ages of children. But on your 10th birthday, you might still find yourself working a 10-hour day at the local mill. The Industrial Revolution called out to women too, and they responded in their thousands. Broadly, women fared better in this new industrialised world. In the old cottage industries, there was no separation between domestic life and work, their labour becoming an extension of household chores. And despite the dangerous and often unsanitary conditions of factories, it sure beat the back-breaking drudgery of domestic service, which suffered longer working hours than any other sector. For women, the unmarried ones at least, there was a beginning and end to work. While the time in between was short, there was enough of it to visit the burgeoning music halls or the local pub. Pay went directly into the hands of women too, so why not treat yourself to a new feather for your hat before handing over the rest to your family? The idea of young working class girls with money to spend did not sit comfortably with wider society. Women with money in their hands could be lured by the same evils as men, drink, rowdiness and promiscuity. Plus how could a wife respect her husband's authority if she did not have to ask him for housekeeping money? And how might a daughter submit to her father's control if she had finances to set up her own home? Then there was the question of women taking jobs that rightfully belonged to men. When women started organising themselves and demanding equal pay, well that really was too much. Today's episode is the first of a five-part series about the battle for equal pay, a journey that spans nearly a hundred years from the late 1880s to the 1970 Equal Pay Act. Much of this battle has taken place in the boroughs of East London, and there is a clear reason for this. People join unions when they feel under threat, 
you see higher membership in dangerous trades like coal mining than you do in safe jobs like journalism. In East London, industrial accidents and even death were a daily occurrence. A union was a form of insurance, providing some protection against those everyday risks. Plus, the Irish and Jewish immigrants who dominated the area knew the state was far more likely to kill you than protect you. Organising women's labour wasn't straightforward, however. To start with, there were a lot less of them, and they often didn't have the support of their male colleagues. That's not to say some didn't organise. In 1832, women working at Robert Owen's Labour Exchange in London made demands for equal pay. Also in 1832, 1,500 card setters in Yorkshire called the first equal pay strike. The following year, unionised women in the Power Loom Weavers Association in Glasgow also struck for equal pay. This female collective action against employers was seen as a serious threat to social cohesion. A commentator in 1834 wrote that female militancy was, quote, more menacing to established institutions than even the education of the lower orders. There were men who supported women's call for equal pay. The labour exchange women workers were supported by their male colleagues. But most saw women in the workplace as a threat to their livelihoods. The remedy for these social ills, the moralists argued, was a return to domesticity. In a speech to the Trade Union Congress in 1875, the TUC's Parliamentary Secretary, Henry Broadhurst, urged Congress to, quote, bring about a condition where our wives and daughters would be in their proper sphere at home instead of being dragged into competition for livelihood against the great and strong men of the world. It became a mark of social standing that a man's wife and daughter should not have to seek employment. A woman's place was in the home, and to be otherwise was wrong, shameful even. Respectability became the leading virtue of the age. Whatever her class, a woman losing her respectability could spell disaster, as it could lead to abandonment by her family. A woman who deserted her husband might be left destitute. She also had no legal custodial rights to her children. The poem Angel in the House by Coventry Patmore distills this age of extreme femininity. The 1854 work presents the wife as so selflessly devoted that she is more than human, a celestial being in fact. It was immensely popular. It reads, Man must be pleased, but him to please is woman's pleasure down the gulf. To his condoled necessities, she casts her best, she flings herself. From these ideas was born the notion of the family wage, an income to be won by the male breadwinner. This placed unequal pay as not only the norm, but the preferred, in order that the man might provide. In many professions, married women would be barred altogether, a ban that would last until the 1950s in some sectors. These Victorian morals led to an increased division in the concept of men and women's work. Women should be restricted to caring roles, while men focus on heavy labour, concepts that still dog us today. When women took on additional work, it was often from the home, making wire brushes, matchboxes and artificial flowers. Work started at dawn and went on until 11pm for less than a living wage. This work was hidden and impossible to unionise. 
For women clinging on to their factory jobs, unions behaved with distinct indifference, if not outright hostility. Attempts to organise women mostly came from outside the labour movement, often through philanthropic women's societies. They were often small, weak and short-lived. The 1880s saw a revival of socialism and withered a growth in trade unionism. Meanwhile, women were mobilising around the issue of suffrage. The coming together of these causes built a generation of women who would challenge the concept of women's work and pay. One such activist was Clementina Black. Clementina was born in 1853 into a comfortable middle-class family. Her father was a solicitor and her mother was a successful portrait painter. It didn't turn out to be the easiest of childhoods, however. When Clementina was small, her father became seriously ill and lost the use of both his legs. In 1875, her mother died from a rupture caused by lifting her immobile husband. As the eldest daughter, she was left in charge of a disabled father and seven brothers and sisters. After her father's death, Clementina moved to London. She was befriended by Eleanor Marx and became involved with the struggles of working-class women in East London. In 1866, she became Honorary Secretary of the Women's Trade Union League. It was not a trade union itself, but an organisation that promoted trade unionism. The League initially had four objectives. Protecting wages and conditions of workers, providing benefits for the sick and unemployed, serving as an employment bureau, and promoting arbitration in work-based disputes. In 1888, Clementina moved an equal pay motion at the Trade Union Congress. The motion nearly didn't happen as just before the event, the TUC Parliamentary Committee ruled that only delegates who were workers at the trade they represent would be admitted. The TUC Secretary-General, Henry Broadhurst, remember him? The one who believed the proper sphere for women was the home. Well, he sent Clementina Black a telegram saying that she would not be admitted and her delegate fee would be returned. Clementina challenged the ruling as having no legal basis. And anyway, Emma Patterson, who previously held her position, was a frequent Congress delegate. Broadhurst eventually backed down and allowed Clementina to attend. She proposed the following resolution that in the opinion of this Congress, it is desirable in the interests of both men and women that in trades where women do the same work as men, they shall receive the same wages. Clementina Black argued that it was in men's interest to support the motion. She pointed out that, quote, where women were employed merely because they were cheaper, all work gradually fell into their hands, whether it was suitable work or not, and that this resulted in lower prices all through that branch of work to the general injury of men and women alike. A Mr. Juggins seconded the motion, speaking about the deplorable condition of women in the chain and nail trade. While the motion passed, sadly it was not acted upon. Coming up after the break, as we enter the pre-war period, women decide they've had enough and gear up for action. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There's also a walking tour app where you can go on self-guided tours around local heritage landmarks. 
and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women. We're back with part two and talking about Mary MacArthur. Arguably, Mary MacArthur did more for women workers than anyone else in her generation. Unlike some of the other leading trade unionists, Mary wasn't in the mill at 12. In fact, she was a Tory living a comfortable middle-class life in Glasgow. In 1901, 21-year-old Mary heard socialists describing the dire conditions faced by low-paid workers. Life would never be the same. In 1906, she founded the National Federation of Women Workers in response to the weakness of small-scale women's unions. One of the major stumbling blocks was their inability to raise sufficient funds for strike pay. Mary claimed, quote, While women were badly paid because of their unorganised condition, they remain unorganised mainly because they were badly paid. She travelled across Britain urging workers to unionise. She had her work cut out though. It was tough for a woman to be in a trade union. The bosses would try to dissuade them from joining, saying they didn't need to worry, they would look after them. Mary urged women to be bold and brave. If they stuck together, they would be so much stronger. Mary was a woman of keen persuasion. By the end of the Federation's first year, she had recruited 2,000 members into 17 branches. The Federation campaigned to expose the evils of the sweated trades in which women often dominated. This included biscuit and jam making factories in East London. In 1906, Mary established the Sweated Industries Exhibition. She was a founder member of the Anti-Sweating League and notably gave evidence to the Select Committee on Home Working in 1908. She gathered her evidence in poor parts of London and in doing so caught diphtheria and spent six weeks in hospital. Although never directly campaigning for equal pay, Mary fought for a minimum wage for women. Through her work, she persuaded the Liberal government to pass the 1909 Trade Boards Act. This attempted to fix minimum wages in the most exploitative trades. In response to the Act, the following year, the Chain Trade Board fixed a minimum wage that was nearly double what women had previously been paid. Employers rebelled, refusing to pay. Mary leapt into action, leading women chainmakers in the black country out on strike. She shrewdly used the media, including the new medium of cinema, to garner support and won the respect of a wide range of people, including politicians, clergy, business, trade unions and the aristocracy. Around £40,000 was raised for the strike fund and after 10 weeks, all chain manufacturing employers had agreed to pay the new minimum wage. In 1911, Mary moved to London. She was joined five years later by Helen Bowden Pease. Helen's father was a Liberal parliamentary candidate who gave her a private income to study at Newham College, Cambridge. Her family had proletarian sympathies though, with both her mother and her grandmother supporting striking miners and Irish home rule. Mary dispatched Helen to East London to organise the women in jam factories. Helen claimed she was warmly welcomed. She said the women were difficult to organise though. It was hard to motivate them to fight for better wages because they were earning so much more than they had previously. 
Instead, she focused on working conditions, which continued to be a source of concern. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, jam making was carried out across the country, everywhere from village kitchens employing one or two women, to the vast London factories employing thousands of workers. Jam making became an occupation frequently reported as being problematic in terms of the wages and the dangerous conditions. Newspapers regularly reported deaths and serious injuries in the factories. Work was intense. The stackers and lifters had to carry 25 kilogram pans, which is the weight of a bag of cement. It's over 9 kilograms heavier than can be safely carried by a woman at work today. It put immense physical strain on them. Most of them were undernourished and frequently pregnant. All women questioned for the Women's Industrial Council worked in the factories through necessity, mostly due to being widowed or their husbands being injured, sick or unable to find regular work. None of the families were bringing in what could be considered a subsistence wage. Beyond the normal strains of working long, strenuous hours, the factories were dangerous environments. In 1895, Elizabeth Riley was killed at Pink's Jam Factory in East London, having fallen into a pan of boiling apples. In 1900, Rosalie Reed was killed at Keeler's Jam Factory, where she fell through a hole by a gangway into a vat of boiling water. It would take the factory owners another two days to erect a fence around the hole to prevent another incident. Despite complaining about the difficulty of organising women, Helen claimed that they had a lot of impact. In 1914, the Federation had organised over 300,000 women workers and greatly improved both pay and conditions. As men went to war and more women went to work, the women's trade union movement had never been stronger. Join us next week when we continue our journey to equal pay. As we head into World War I, we see a time of mass recruitment into jobs vacated by men. Never before would women enter the workforce in such huge numbers. But would they be treated fairly? This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of Women Activists of East London Project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the Barry Emile and Norman Melbourne Trust for their support of today's episode. <laughs>